Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me again for part two of classical education. Last time we talked about an overall dominion perspective when it comes to education in general, but specifically classical. And the question, you know, that is obvious in education is by what standard and for what ends? And you need to have a template in order to understand the dominion perspective of knowledge, education, and curriculum. And we talked a little bit about the city of man versus the city of God, secularism versus sacred, and that for the Christian, we really should not have that compartmentalized view since God and the Lord is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He doesn't share. I used to tell my children, God doesn't share well <laughs> um, because he's a jealous God. And so education has everything to do with that. But then we have to look at, okay, so you understand that there are people who are looking at classical schools and you see them cropping up everywhere. You'll have charter schools that are classical schools. You'll have Christian schools that are classical schools. You'll have co-op schools or hybrid schools that are classical schools. And Kathy Brown is joining me today to sort of give a perceptive look into the difference between all these different kinds of classical schools. And some of what she says might be very helpful to you. Some might upset you, but <laughs> there's something about looking at a subject through the lens of scripture and not that people can't have different points of view, but these points of view need to be defended by scripture you can't say, but, and we'll put scripture off to the side, and now we'll talk about things, and we'll bring it back later. No, it always has to be present. So, Kathy, thanks for joining me again. Good to be here. Okay. Most people would think, aren't classical schools classical schools? But you say, <laughs> no, no, no. There are at least three different kinds of classical schools. So, why don't you start off with what you call the traditional classical school. Mm -hmm. This is, this is the old school. And, and this is the one that most people will come to mind when they, when they start looking into classical systems, this is the, the old school, the, the Ivy league prep, the, I went to have the best education. So we want the traditional, the traditional is defined as long established. It's produced or done or used in accordance with, Tradition, obviously. So we're talking about something that is habitually used or found. This is our historical norm. This is our historical, typical schools. When we talk about classical education, been around for 2,500 years, the traditional is the one that has been around the longest, okay? Um, we've already learned a little bit about the classical education as a system. To really see how that comes into play in a traditional classic school, I mean, we're learning about education. So we're going to do a little bit of a teaching exercise here. We're going to put on our little listening ears and see if we can pick up some language that kind of lets us know 
get this. It's not about secular or sacred. This is city of man versus city of God. Okay. So this is a very common, a typical mission statement. And I can say common because I accidentally wrote in a wrong word for it. And when I went to spell check it and look it up online on Google, I found half a dozen different schools that popped up on the first search page that use this mission statement verbatim. So we're going to start with plagiarizing in the classical schools, but it's fine. So let's look at this mission statement. Classical schools are unique among schools for three main reasons, a high or noble purpose, a content rich curriculum, and a traditional classroom environment. Okay. So there's our three points. We're going to go into depth on those. A classical school seeks to foster two things, individual happiness and a healthy regime. (laughs) Happiness is understood to be rooted in the virtuous use of our highest faculty, reason, and therefore entails participation in civil conversation. But what kind of conversation is this? Classical education does not teach students to banter or score a point in conversation as if it were a boxing match. Rather, it seeks the best kind of conversation, one that asks, what is good for a human being? What is beautiful and how should I live my life? This requires not only a deep familiarity with our history and literature, but roots in the rigor of mathematics and science. Classical education then is a liberal education or an education befitting a free human being. A healthy regime for us is a republic with historically rooted cultured and responsible citizens. Okay, we'll take a second there for a moment because if you're like most of us, you've probably got a little bit of a bad taste in the back of your throat going, oh my goodness, the blatant humanism. I just want to vomit, right? (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe. (laughs) And, And see, I think that's the issue here. Maybe there are people who would read this and say, I do want this for my children. And I'm talking about church going so-called Bible-believing people, because it sounds noble and good. Who doesn't want a content-rich curriculum? Who doesn't want a traditional classroom environment when the alternative that's probably around most people that's quote-unquote free is anything but? So you are looking at it from the point of view of people (laughs) going to see the humanism. I think a lot of people would say, oh, I want to shop there. Yeah, well, that and that's a problem. That's what we're trying to point out. That's why we're trying to set this up as this is city of God versus city of man. Those are all man-exalting terms. They are not in accordance with total depravity and our fallen nature and acknowledging that we are sinful even in our thoughts, in our reasoning faculties, and our ability to think. These are all lifting up man according to man's standards, that's not biblical, and we we need to reinforce. Yeah, okay, you, you fine. You can think that sounds good. According to the Bible, if you think that sounds good, then you're in love with your human side. You're in love with your worldliness. You like your fallen nature. You like your self-exaltation. You don't see a problem with this whole to be as God thing, determining right and wrong for yourself because you find yourself capable not a sinner who suffers under a fallen nature who doesn't want to trust themselves and runs to the word of God to determine their world and life view. Okay. So 
Pull the rug out from under the noble purpose part. Okay, (laughs) let's talk about real content. (laughs) Uh, This is our content-rich curriculum, okay? A classical education delivers real content as opposed to what fake content for everybody else students learn about historical events characters stories fables myths scientific facts and mathematical proofs <laughs> real content is characters stories fables myths it's fine it's fine it's great we're moving on they read whole books in great depth and learn to approach books with both with the moderation to learn okay that's buzzy words but what do you mean by that and the courage to question A republic is best served when its citizens can formulate historically rooted opinions, draw upon powerful myths, stories, allegories, and tales, and understand the basic workings of the natural world. Together, these abilities sustain the best kind of conversation and elevate the tenor of our common life. (laughs) Okay, okay. So let me comment. I mean, I already know that what we could hear in your voice what you I'm trying not to be too that. terribly sarcastic, but it's hard. It's hard. Right, right. So when you look at all this stuff, I, I think a lot of people who have come to understand that democracy is not a biblical point of view, they hear the word republic, right? Because the purpose of this is to develop people to appreciate being citizens of a republic, But, and as I'm sure you will point out, so far in the first and second category, there's something glaringly missing, (laughs) right? And so not to be lulled or tempted into thinking this is good because, oh my goodness, not many people talk about a republic. You'll hear most today talk about America's a democracy, right? So these explanations say republic, and I'm sure Someone can then think, oh, I see. This is why America is great because of classical education that everybody had before. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make that comment. So now talk about the traditional classroom environment. Mm-hmm. A classical classroom prioritizes the authority of the teacher and therewith his or her expertise and responsibility to deliver it to the students. Students are not the passive recipients of knowledge, but active participants in the discussion. This disciplined and orderly environment facilitates attention, focus, and engagement. I'm sorry, it sounds like a spiel from 1984, right? (laughs) Look at us. We're training you to be good citizens and to pay attention to your authority figure. Prioritizes the authority of the teacher. I mean, how many news stories are out nowadays where the department of education is overstepping and they're hiding things from the parents that the teachers know things new no truths about the kids and the kids are coming to the teachers trusting the teachers not to tell mom and dad because they want the teacher and what the teacher thinks to apply to their lives and not what their parents do so in a sense this traditional classroom environment with the authority of the teacher That really is what's going on in our state-run schools. They're establishing the authority of the teacher over the parent. So I'm not exactly sure why somebody would think this is a good thing 
especially if they've been running away from state schools. <laughs> and we're going to we're going to earmark this because we'll go further into depth on that on our next podcast when we start talking about hidden curriculum. So remember this talking about training and talking about getting us used to responding to authority figures within the establishment. That's not coincidental or accidental. It's very intentional on their part. So looking at that whole mission statement from an overall perspective, <laughs> would you say it encourages fealty to the city of God or the city of man? Not, not God. Yes, man. <laughs> it didn't even mention God, did it? Oh, well, but, but again, but again, this is, this is for traditional classical. Yes, this is where well, we're establishing what education and what learning is. But let me just interject here. Maybe they did surreptitiously mention God with stories, fables, and myths, because <laughs> maybe we'll hear about, I mean, you can't stud, you can't be well educated if you don't know about the Bible, but it depends on how you view the Bible. If the Bible is covered under, you know, fables and myths, but good ones, good fables and good and good allegories. It's a long lasting tradition of storytelling. We have to acknowledge that those Christians told the best folk tales that lasted the longest of anybody. Right. <laughs> so going back to by what standard and for what ends and in their own words, you haven't made these up. As a matter of fact, not only their own words, but a lot of people have used these words to entice people to participate in traditional classical schools. Again, if you have come out of a state school environment, you may be easily swayed into thinking, if I do this for my children, they'll get better instruction than I did. But if you say that as a believer, and you don't notice or don't really care about the absence of the biblical world and life view that's not present, then how can you say they're getting something better? Well, they are getting, quote, better instruction, but better instruction in what? If the public school is trying to train them to consider themselves first and foremost citizens of the state with responsibilities and duties to the state, and they're going to go into the classical to get a better education in being good little citizens of the state and being productive for the ends of the state. Is that really a better education? It's more thorough. It's a lot deeper along the same vein. But, okay, so how deep do you want the rotten to go? I want my kid to be 100% rotten. Absolutely. The, the state schools, they only get us 40% of the way there. I need to make sure that they're <laughs> absolutely God haters and humanistic by the end of the day. So better by what? Higher highest by what? What By what standard are we judging this? By the world's standards or by God's standards? That's why we, we talked over this Proverbs 22.6 and the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism number one. What are our standards supposed to be? Far too often, parents not having achieved a really great education themselves look at this and are in awe and in wonder of all of the learning. And they are allowing themselves to be overawed and intimidated and to desire what seems to be a good thing coming from the system, from those educators, from the people who can talk like this. But is it really good? According to God's standards, no. How many of you were chosen because you were wise? How many of you were chosen because you were smart? No, God chose the weak things. So if anything, congratulations that you didn't get thoroughly indoctrinated into this and that you're not absolutely, because that means 
that you haven't gotten hardened. Humanism hardens you against God. You can't have both. It is city of God or city of man. It is the glory of man or the glory of God. So now we move on to neoclassical schools. <laughs> so yeah. tell us about them. Neo, we all, we all, well, hopefully, even if we've got our public education, we all know that Neo means new, right? So we're looking for a new iteration of the classical. This has literally just been the last century. So 2,500 years of doing it all the same way, and we're reinventing the wheel now. That should cause us a little bit of pause to stop and consider, okay, yes, Semper Reformanda and all of that, but are we reinventing it good? So you take the traditional from the classical school, and we're going to give it some modern tweaks in the neoclassical. And what are the tweaks? So a little bit of a history lesson here. Neoclassical was popularized by Dorothy Sayers' essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. Show of hands for all of those who can't see. Anybody familiar with the name Dorothy Sayers? Famous author, right? She was personally educated in the classical tradition, but she referred to her own approach, not as classical, but as neo-medieval, which is a little weird. You don't like the word. Okay, but I'm, I'm all for changing off names. So let's change it over to neo-medieval, whatever. I don't want to hang us up completely on educational qualifications or whatnot, but we often ask, and you asked at the beginning of this podcast, by what authority do you come here? What qualifications do you have to be speaking on this thing? Just so we know, what is your statement of beliefs? What have you done that allows you to talk about this stuff, you know, in an intelligent manner, not just making things up? Dorothy Sayers, educational qualifications and dominion considerations. Yeah, we should ask this of everybody we listen to or try to take advice from. Sayers was not a trained educator, which isn't necessarily bad. I only went through a year of education courses in college, and I ended up finishing my degree with a Bible major. So I've only had a year of formal education courses. She had very little teaching experience. Uh, It's one thing to be a layman without formal credentials, but it's another one to be an armchair quarterback (laughs) when you've only held the football six times in your life and say, but I'm pretty sure I know how to throw this football. Sayers' evidence-based system was solely based on the example and reflection of her own childhood. So those paying attention, that's a survey pool of one. Okay. Now, your experience is valid. You've learned things. You've reiterated things. But if you're going to give universal advice, maybe we should ask for more than one person in the pool to look from. She's actually best known for her crime novels. She did profess to be a Christian describes herself as Anglo-Catholic, which means she really couldn't figure out what her confession was going to be. She admitted in her own words, okay, and this is how we judge based off of the confession of our mouths. I am quite without the thing known as inner light or spiritual experience. Instead, claiming to possess what she termed as a passionate intellect. Okay, so wait a minute. You're saying, "Mm, I don't feel the work of the Holy Spirit. But I like my mind. I trust my mind. I I really, really, really like using my mind. We've been following along so far. Is that a red flag or is that a, hey, this is trustworthy as believers? She prized the beautiful intellectual pattern of Christianity. What? Is that a a spiritual influence? Does that speak to the soul? Does that speak to faith? Does that speak of understanding your sin and convicting? No, 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 no. It's a Fun. It's a you know, beautiful intellectual pattern. When we compare this with Westminster definition of the image of God and man, Sayers only focused on the knowledge. She didn't put any thought 
into the more humbling tasks of righteousness and holiness, instead created the mere intellectual dominion. So there's no moral response in this. This is all just purely the work of the mind. And that's what neoclassicism is based off of. Now, why is it important to note this all up front? This is not a fulsome Christianity. There are many who would say this isn't Christianity whatsoever. I can't claim that. I can't, I don't know her heart. I don't know anyone's heart. I know by the profession of the words coming out of her mouth, she's missing th- some things that a Christian should be acknowledging. So am I going to put a lot of faith in her? Am I going to see her as a good biblical example for how I should be training up my child? Probably not. This lacks a lot of the safety rails to keep it from syncretizing with humanism and its belief in the exalted, capable, unfallen mind of man. They believe in beautiful intellectual patterns, too. You just happen to say Christianity is one of them. Okay, so let me say this. Most people who are listening, if they haven't been exposed to this as an option when it came time to educate their children, whether in a day school, homeschool or whatever, Nobody would know right off the bat Dorothy Sayers, but what gives her credibility by osmosis is she was good friends with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So do you like Narnia? Do you like Lord of the Rings? She was one of these guys. Mm -hmm. And so she gets a lot of acceptance, not so much by examining what you have asked us to examine about her but by her association. So it's not guilt by association. It's benefit. It's, you know, basically saying she's okay. Look at who her friends were. I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is perhaps my favorite author in the last hundred years. Um, C.S. Lewis, like myself, if, for those who have Myers-Briggs themselves, is what is referred to as an INTJ. We are a minority in the population. We sit around and we reflect upon things. Um, I have a lot in common with his thought processes. I also find myself reflected in him and the tendency towards parched scholasticism, that the love of the learning and the love of the thinking has a tendency to draw the heart away from things. So that's, yes, we write in Christian things, and yet none of us are inerrant. None of us are infallible. C.S. Lewis wasn't infallible. I'm not infallible. So Dorothy Sayers doesn't automatically get a level of infallibility just because she rubbed elbows with a couple guys that we all love and and read their works over and over and over again. Right. And this is important because... Dorothy Sayers, if you've read her Lost Tools of Learning, basically gives an approach. And this approach is called the trivium approach. Mm -hmm. And explain that for our listeners. And then we can comment on, is it a biblical approach? Trivium. Trivium starts with tri. So tri means three. So we're talking about some sort of level of three. And hearers is the grammar logic and rhetoric. And we use those not as, you know, varieties of language arts, like we learn them nowadays, but the stages of a child's intellectual development, the grammar stage or the pole parrot stage, as she refers to it, is when children memorize easily. So memory work is supposed to be emphasized in that stage. The logic stage is in the early teen years, and that's characterized by a tendency towards contentiousness. (laughs) Early teenagers like to argue things. Their argumentative nature 
um, of new and young teens. And we try to then tame that or channel that natural impulse towards argumentative to oh, learning how to use your mind, you learning how to use your words, learning how to develop arguments. Okay, you want something to argue about? Let's work on debate here. The rhetoric stage then is at the end of our childhood education, our late teen years. And this is the favored self-expression. Uh, to sayers, it was the perfect time to work on the art of persuasion and speech and in writing. So these are, again, not bad. Those are nice general things that anybody who's had kids can say, yeah, okay, I see kids like to parrot things when they're younger. Oh, sure. I can observe that. Kids like to argue when they're in the early teenage years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can argue that. They get in their late teenage years. Yeah. They really start to learn how to use those words and effectively and persuade people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds great. And, and what all? But do we only treat people according to those developmental markers? What's, what's the problem with using solely developmental mile markers? Where's the work of the Holy Spirit in that? Did the Holy Spirit tell us, no, 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 no. Let the little children come and echo things back, but don't worry about trying to worry about any sort of logic or any sort of rhetoric or anything beyond. They can only swallow this at this age. So absolutely never teach them anything beyond this at this age. Never expose them to anything beyond this at this age. Treat them as an automaton when they're young, almost the same like you train your dog. And then don't try to actually deal with the (laughs) argumentative nature of the kids and make them not argue. Just give them a better outlet for it. And, oh, oh, good, finally, you're almost an adult and you can hold an intelligent conversation. Isn't this a better end up for us in education? None of those are biblical. They're they're neat psychologically to, to consider. But if they were necessary, if that was exactly how we were supposed to be understanding children and teaching children, wouldn't it have been in the Bible somewhere? Exactly. And I have some personal experience with this because for the short time that I was teaching in a classical school, it was a Christian school, and we'll get to that category later. When I asked my students who were high school, who were now in the rhetoric stage, I gave them five minutes, write down the Ten Commandments, and only two out of the 14 could do it correctly. And then I commented later to one of the administration and her comment was, oh, they know that. They learned that in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, apparently in their grammar stage in fourth grade, <laughs> they mm-hmm. didn't retain it. So by putting kids into these or students into these boxes, it just seems to be an evolutionary model that everybody passes through. What about the student at eight who already has the ability to comprehend and now wants to put it all together and have a discussion? If you say, no, 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 dear, you are not in the um, logic stage yet. You must stay in the grammar stage. (laughs) We've ceased to look at them as individuals. And I don't want to go so far as to say lab rats, but are we looking at them as people? Trained monkeys, cookie cutter trained monkeys, but God didn't create cookie cutter trained monkeys. God didn't sit back at the beginning of all of time and say, I am going to determine the world and I'm going to know the names of these people to be born. And they're all going to be the exact same person. No, he gave us all gifts. He gave us all specific personalities. He gave us all strengths. And we're we're commanded in the Bible about how to use all these differences 
for the use of the church, for the use of our families, in order to advance our sanctification. Why on earth then would we eliminate all of those differences in any education model? Why on earth would we not want to promote those? Hey, let's find those as as soon as possible. Right. I think of Jesus as a young boy in the temple when his parents didn't realize he was still there. He was conversing with the elders and they were astonished, the the people he was talking with, because he knew so much. Can you imagine if it's like, I am sorry, he is not ready for the rhetoric stage. We don't have to listen to him (laughs) as if we're going to judge people just by these categories. Yeah. There's a problem with developing a whole system of teaching around developmental mile markers. Okay. The Bible says nothing about childhood development and learning mile markers. And if you're a God-fearer, if you understand the inerrant word of God, if you know that God determined for himself what he was going to put in the Bible, then you have to acknowledge that silence isn't an accident. That's not an oversight on God's part. That's not that something that we needed was missing. And it's a good thing that we came along 2000 years after the last of the New Testament wrapped up so that we could then go through and learn childhood development and figure out how to actually teach kids, because obviously they haven't been learning for the last 6000 years in human history. (laughs) This silence coincides with train up a child and let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. We believe in covenantalism. We believe in the promises of the Bible that say, When you train up your child, they won't depart. This is a promise to you and to your children, which means that when we tell them, no, I'm sorry, you're not ready for that. I'm going to keep it away from you. And I've said that before. I've talked in another blog about, you know, don't only give them stuff that they can't digest. But at the same time, while you do things a lot, according to what they are age wise, I call it the spaghetti method. We and nobody I've encountered does this the same way. So apparently, me and my brothers were just freaks. But we grew up learning to cook spaghetti. You know how you can tell when spaghetti's done. <laughs> oh, this is horrible! And I don't know which of my brother's friends showed him this. But you take a piece out of the pot and you fling it up at the ceiling, and the spaghetti's done when it actually sticks. Okay, you might as well take it out and fling it and see what sticks, because you don't know. Because there's the work of the Holy Spirit going in there. There's an aspect of that that says for us as the parent, for the educator, okay, here's here's the knowledge I'm going to pass along to you. Here's what we expect for you to be learning. Here's what we think you're going to be able to learn. But there's an almighty God working in the background who has implanted a his Holy Spirit within you to work and operate in ways that I can't see, I can't control, I can't truly train. My faithful response is to present this material to you or to make it available to you so that whenever the prompting of the Holy Spirit within you reaches for it, it's available. Right. So let's go back to your spaghetti example. (laughs) How long it takes for the spaghetti to get where you want it. Well, we have things like you could have soft, you could have firm, Mm -hmm. you know, what's your preference. So again, you have to say, what are you trying to accomplish? Yes. Overdone spaghetti (laughs) will stick but it won't be tasty. And so to you you might have ways in which to do it. How many times, and I know you teach your children, how many times have you presented something and then you can see, okay, she didn't get it. Okay. No, there's no response. Did you understand that? Uh Uh-uh. Well, yes, but then they can't explain what they, so you know, (laughs) that was just too soon. It's the same way if you're feeding an infant, you know, ready for solid food and then the baby spits up. Okay. 
not I'll never give them solid food. I just have to back off and do it incrementally. But here's the thing. She might not have learned that exact concept, but you know what she did learn? She did learn that she's going to learn that concept at some point. She did learn that it's okay to not be able to understand everything immediately and to be able to look forward to the day when we can't understand more. Now, a dominion perspective on learning. Are we only supposed to teach them the content or are we supposed to teach them how we learn as dominioneers? Are we supposed to teach them we're supposed to add knowledge? We're supposed to add knowledge that can be used for the righteousness and the holiness. So even if I don't get it now, I'm going to get it because I'm I'm a part of this fellowship. I'm pursuing understanding here and God will add it because God is faithful in that. Right. It, it's, it, it's the concept that says you recognize children as children. But you recognize they're not always going to be children. I, I was reading in, um, a part of one of Dr. Rush Dooney's books, and it's like, can you imagine if when you were eight years old, you got everything you wanted forever? Would you want those same things now at 38 years old or 68 years old? I want to eat as much candy as I ever can. I never want to take a nap. I want to stay up all night. Okay, I understand that at eight years old, but thank God. He matures us so that we recognize that everything we want is a child. So when you tell your children, you will get to this, we will get to this. Right now, it's not going to make as much sense to you. I think it it goes back to how many people will say, oh, that's what my parents were telling me. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get it. But now that I have children, I get it. Well, guess what? We weren't ready at 10 years old to put on the hat of mom and dad and understand why there was a yes or a no. So I like what you said. It's that there is a, a a way in which we say, okay, I'm supposed to learn this now, but learning doesn't stop when school is done. We're always <laughs> learning. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to go in and we're going to look, we're going to move on to our last school. And we're going well, to wait, before you do, that, do we're going to transition. Between yeah. The I'm going to ask you to do one thing though. Mm-hmm. So Dorothy Sayers, she was 1947. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere or other in the <laughs> 70s or 80s, she, even though she had promulgated this idea early, suddenly it came to the forefront again. What yeah. brought it to the forefront? This is our this is our transition from our second school to our third school. Okay, so in the early 1970s, a young Navy man picked up a reprint in the Natural National Review, and which had Sayers' essay in it. So when his children got close to school age, he and his wife began disliking the school options in the area. I'm sure none of us have ever come across that disliking school options in the area. They said they couldn't say handing over their daughter to someone that they didn't know, and they were afraid she'd receive a secular and a superficial education. So they developed a plan to start their own school called the Logos School. Any guesses as to his name? (laughs) That is evangelical heavyweight pastor Doug Wilson. So Doug Wilson picked up on neoclassicism. And he put it into a what we call a classical Christian school. And this is going to be our third classical school that we're looking at now. And this is, you think we've been divisive so far. It's not that we're tending to be divisive, but this is where we're going to be discerning here. Okay. Because uh, not all things are created equal. Doug Wilson has a wonderful school and, and the, the system is great. And, and we will get, <laughs> we will get to that, but they're not all 
Doug Wilson schools, right? Any education system is a tool. Now, tools need two things to perform their tasks. They need good design and they need capable wielding. Okay, so when we talk about good design, there's a difference between a claw hammer and a club when we go to drive nails into something. I don't know about you. I don't want to pick up a club and try to manage to hit. Uh, I would prefer to use the claw hammer. Capable wielding, yeah, that, that hammer, that wonderful claw hammer, using that on the nail, that's a really, really, really good use of that tool. That's capable wielding. Using that hammer on your skull is not a good use of that tool, okay? That's not a very godly use of that tool. So we need to keep these things in mind, okay? We're not here to say absolutely yes and absolutely no. We're here to point out the tendencies and the dangers that we can come across and how to mark, especially here now, we're moving into the Christian schools, the classically Christian schools, how to tell good Christian school not so Christian school, good classical system been adapted to the Bible. No, still the city of man is coming blaring through in this one. Okay. So we're going to exercise discernment here. Classical Christian schools can, and they often do suffer from designs from flaws in design and from flaws in execution. The problem with even Christian neoclassicism is the tendency of parents to rest in the system, to to say, okay, I found it's a Christian system. It's got more advanced educational stuff. And they're not vigilant. They don't do their utmost to establish the covenant in the next generation. An old school term for you, sedulity. Do you know sedulity? Explain. Oh, this is the quality of being constantly diligent and attentive. Okay, so we don't sit back and rest. We don't find the one answer and say, well, this has got to be it. So we're not constantly keeping an eye on it, making sure that the train doesn't go off the rails. While most earnest believers, really, really, truly trying believers will carefully look into the creeds and the beliefs and the doctrines in their search for a good and biblical and Christian church, they're not so diligent and thorough when they look for a good Christian school. They're just glad to say, oh, look, it's Christian. And they open the Bible and they have a Bible course over there. Woohoo! It's something. It's better than public school, right? And technically a rotten banana doesn't smell as bad as a rotten egg, but I don't want to eat either. Do you? Right. This is where discernment comes in for parents because mm-hmm. our children are given to us as a stewardship. We don't own them. We are going to be held accountable for what we did and why. And if it was so, I could just feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. I had bragging rights with the neighbors. I got my parents and in-laws off my back. Then I don't know that I would say that's going to fly as you stand in front of your creator. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, and we want this is not meant to be discouraging. This is meant to give you tools to help so you know how to look. Okay, you, you, you're you really excited about the idea of pursuing a classical education. Well, let's learn how to do it in a God-honoring, in a biblical manner. We know it's not with the full education system like we looked at the last one. We know that it's not absolutely guaranteed in any of the schools. We're working through how we can tell where it works well, where it can be done well in the school, and where we should be running the opposite direction. A lot of parents will look at the list of the classes offered and the grades and the test scores and the college acceptance rate, but they won't look as in-depth into the theological standards 
for what makes that school Christian. There's a lot of variety in Christian churches, so you would expect there to be a lot of variety of doctrines in Christian schools. But we don't bother to look and say, okay, we know these technically they're not going to uphold those reform standards and technically they're kind of not biblical on this but at least it's they mention the name jesus they use the bible that's something there's also a problem when it comes to teachers they'll make sure the teachers have an appropriate educational credential you do you have your four-year degree do you have your master's in teaching but they won't ask questions about the spiritual lives and the growth and grace of those teachers now when we look for teachers in the church when we look for elders, teaching elders in the church, do we have requirements of what it takes to be a teaching elder? This is where we look at the Timothy and the Titus and the, you know, they're looking at the the lives of these men, husband of one wife. They have good children who are submissive to them and who are learning and growing in grace themselves. There are spiritual standards for teaching the truths of God within the church. Well, if you're going to advertise yourself as a Christian school, if you're going to teach God, in another, why would you not have similar standards? Okay, so I'm going to stop you there because the modern church has bought into the idea that I am not allowed to judge. So it's no um, secret that Christian schools don't pay as much as the public schools because taxpayer dollars aren't being used. And it's not a surprise that a lot of people who went through teachers' colleges would rather teach in a Christian school environment, because at least you can say things like murder is wrong and you don't have to acknowledge all sorts of aberrative thinking. But in many cases, it comes down to, did you accept Jesus into your heart? Mm -hmm. And uh, yes. Okay, good. Not has any of the training you got infiltrated your thinking and it basically takes precedence over biblical thought and What's the purpose of teaching? And do you realize that the parents of the students you have are delegating authority to you? And do those parents even know what you think on important issues, how you live your life? So anytime you're turning your children over to anyone else, I don't care if it's a piano teacher, a soccer coach, or whatever it is, you need to know what the influences are because young children especially tend to be sponges. That's why Dorothy Sayer <laughs> said they're good parrots, yep. right? Because they yep. inherently will say, well, my parents dropped me off here and this is the teacher. I better listen. Mm-hmm. The A lot of the, the problems with them, we're saying you need to look further into this and this this is not something where you just make a single one-time choice and then move off. Parents fall prey to their fallen natures. We all do. I, I don't know about you, but it takes a lot of time to develop your own curriculum, to write out your own lesson plans, to set things up on your own, to whatever extent you do your own. It takes time and you, you don't always want to put in time. Sometimes it feels nice to do it and you feel really great and look at me doing the Christian things. And other times it's just like, okay, isn't that good enough? Can't I rest? Can't I fold the hands just a little bit here? Parents need to remember their own fallen nature. And their tendency to want to not put in as much effort and keep that in mind so that they then turn around and go the opposite way and put in extra diligence, extra um, searching into these things so that they can figure out. We can't rest in the comparisons anymore. We can't say, well, okay, this is better than the public school system. So that's fine. That makes it fine. But it's, it's more than 
most parents try. I'm doing what more than what my neighbor is is trying to do for their kids. You know, they're they're just letting them do. They don't even care to check their homework. I'm actually trying to find a good school. Isn't that good enough? Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I this is a lot better than the education I had when I was their age. Is that better than truly good enough? Is is that all it is? It's just it has to be a little bit better. Does that actually make it good, or is that just eh? I'm I'm higher on on the the chart. I'm I'm higher up on the arc of of the normative. That's that I'm content with that. And I think this is where we'll see deficiencies within the church within preaching. In other words, the children of today will be, let's take it on a just purely good citizens, will be the voters of the next 10, 20 years. So if their education hasn't been at its core biblical, as opposed to we all know slavery was wrong, the Crusades were bad. Well, were they wrong? What was, was the war in the United States solely about slavery? Or is that what the secularists have said? And mm-hmm. so to be a good Christian school, you better say the same thing because these guys are smart and they have credentials. See, credentials, and I think this is an important concept, have at its root credo, belief. So your credentials are the affirmation of your beliefs have been validated by something or someplace. So my, my credentials come from Princeton or mine come from Yale or mine come from Harvard. Who's credentialing and, and does it matter? And that's why the parents who say, Oh, this is just so hard. I don't want to take the time. It's too much work are probably the same people who bemoan, Look at the situation in our society. It's terrible. Someone should do something about that. Absolutely. Someone else. Someone should. All right. So let's get you some good things to look at, to to examine and to operate that discernment by. We said that there's tools need two things to perform. There's you have to have good design and capable building. So we're going to look at classical Christian school design flaws. And then we're going to look at the execution flaws so that you know, okay, well, they say they're classical. They say they're Christian. Can I really trust this? Do I want to send my kid here? Should I send my kid here? If I'm being biblical, can I send my kid here? Or am I just giving them the same thing as public education? You notice there's anything missing in the discussions of the triviums and the quadriviums? I mean, we've mentioned it several times. There's no notice of God. If you check the language used for the emphasis, you'll find a system that's geared around scholasticism and academic excellence and vigorous studies, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all hot button education terms. They put the emphasis on knowledge for dominion with righteousness and holiness getting second billing at best, but often not even addressed. Oh, okay. You know, there's a Jesus course there on the side. There's a Bible course there on the side. Yeah, but it's not part of the system. That's just a little, again, that sticker that we threw on at the, at the extra to be able to call it Jesus. That's not a Christian system. That is a worldly system that we then tried to bring a little bit of Jesus into. The classical Christian system started with that Thomas Aquinas system of knowledge that separated secular and sacred and led to some really weird theological developments in the Middle Ages. <laughs> it flourished in the faithful years of the Reformation, but it ended up ultimately falling prey to the Enlightenment, causing a unwinding of a great deal of the Reformation with the mass evangelical exodus to Arminianism in the West. That's not a good success rate. When we look at 
faith, the faith of the people and classical education, it doesn't seem like classical education, classical schools tend towards a God-fearing, faithful, Bible-believing population that is continued from generation to generation. That's a problem. The design flaw in the classical system is that while it still presents a, a lot of great learning, and there's great learning to be done in here, it expects the city of man and the city of God play nice together <laughs> and respect each other's boundaries. Okay, okay, okay. They're secular and sacred. So this, these say over here, these are secular subjects. We learn these in the secular realm. But then we can throw in the God and, and they're both going to stay there. The whole point of this is the antagonism between the two. Okay. The work alongside each other system can never find an equilibrium because God demands dominion in all things. God does not let us have secular subjects. Well, thanks for us. Thanks for Thomas Aquinas for being able to say, no, 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 that's not, that's not sacred. You don't have to worry about that. But God doesn't say that. So why should we be picking that up? This means that all subjects of knowledge have to submit to the rule and reign of Christ. There can be no secular subjects. There cannot be any discussion of these subjects without a discussion of how they submit to God. Have you heard that in any of our discussion? Did you hear that in the mission statement? Did you hear that in the Dorothy Sayers school? None of them have discussed how this knowledge then submits to God. None of them discuss why we need to know this knowledge for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of how we behave one amongst each other right in the eyes of God. None of this refers to holiness, how we are answerable to almighty God. It skips all of that over. History shows that more often than not, the fallen nature of man is going to win the day and the secular will subject the sacred and take dominion. And Christian faithfulness and obedience suffer for it. We, we can't stress that enough. The system always tends to fold towards the secular. When we try to make them play well together, it folds towards the secular. That's because we're missing what should be our core. What is the core? What's supposed to be the core, the central part of edu Christian education? So you pointed out to me something that I, I knew, but I didn't really consider it before. When you take a look at the course of study, what they do in seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, things get put in an order that elevates something over the scripture. Give some examples of that so people might even remember from their own education. If you look in the course offerings, you look in the classical education offerings, you're going to find that the kids are going to get four years of Latin education and instruction before they are required to study the Pentateuch or the prophets. You get four years of Latin before you get the first five books of the Bible. Are you kidding me? They end up reading six books out of the Shakespearean canon before they end up reading the entirety of the biblical canon. Why on earth are you reading Elizabethan English before you're reading at least one of the good modern translations of the Bible? Time-wise, by the time you read six Shakespeare plays, you've practically read the same length as, a, as the Bible anyway, but it's not prioritized. You study the various philosophies of the humanists throughout the ages, but there's no study of systematic theology. Both of these are systems of explaining the mind of man and his duties and how he interacts with the world. So why on earth are we learning Rousseau and Rene Descartes and John Locke? And yet we're not learning Charles Hodge. We're not learning Rush Juni. We're not learning full systems of biblical thought. But we can learn systems of humanistic thought. Sure, that's fine. 
purported aim to establish a Christian worldview while engaging with secular subjects. There's no indication of needing knowledge in Christian foundational doctrines or a certain level of familiarity with the Bible before you approach these non-Christian sources. They say this, oh, you're going to learn these things, you're going to do these great, and then we're going to apply Christ in the Bible to them. Great. Did I miss where we learned Christ in the Bible? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, all right. We're, congratulations. We're going to go in and perform open-heart surgery tomorrow. Are you ready? Where's the heart? I uh, chest rib spreader. Some, I think it's uh, I think it's that one. No, that's the scalpel, sir. Okay, let's try with the next one. They don't address this, and I there's a part of me that understands. Okay, okay, that's hard to do in a school system, or it's not supposed to be done in the school system. Why not? Is is that because it's impossible, or is that because we've gotten so used to saying? Learn the sacred elsewhere. That's not our realm. That's something else. This knowledge, all right here on the secular realm, you don't have to have any of that beforehand or someone else is responsible for it. We don't need to check and make sure. We're sure you're going to be able to figure it out. This way lies madness. This is, this is really dangerous and ignorant syncretism. While Christian classical schools will say they're balancing the sacred and the secular by analyzing the secular according to the sacred and practice they're starting with the secular and then trying to apply some sacred to it. Which one then is the central knowledge? Which one is foundational learning? If we train up a child in the way he should go and we say, first and foremost, these classical subjects and then apply some Bible to it. What are they going to do when they grow up? But they're not going to depart from that. They're going to go first and foremost, secular knowledge apart from God, apart from dominion, apart from duty, responsibility in how we use that knowledge and why we're given that knowledge. That's not biblical. Not only that, you hear over and over again, this is usually a criticism to people who homeschool, but the same could be applied to people who send their children to Christian schools. When are they going to learn how to live in the real world? So the implication is Christianity, biblical thought is not the real world. The real world is not the world that says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The real world is get a good job, get a good education, go to college. You see between the classical mindset and dominion learning which one of them actually engages and teaches the real world? The classical mindset is going to give you six months of Homer. How are you going to use that for your job one day? Whereas a dominion mindset and understanding literature is going to teach you the purpose and power of words. It's going to teach you how to engage with the humanisms and judge them according to the biblical standards and to be able to resist the draw of that, not only resist the draw, but then to be able to persuade and, and to show the goodness of the character and nature of almighty God through words. Now, which one of those is ready for the real world? One of them is ready for jeopardy, trivia pursuit night, (laughs) but the other one can actually live amongst people and make a difference. And know how to respond to the, well, everybody knows this is (laughs) the way it should be. We want warriors, ambassadors for Jesus Christ who will say, no, 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 that's not true. And I do think that we're talking education of children here, 
but I don't think people take parental roles as seriously as they should. I got to get them enrolled in a good school. I, you know, but they think that then the responsibility is off them. God is still going to hold you responsible. Yeah. And paying extra tuition that your tax dollars don't cover doesn't get you off the hook. And so I think in a lot of ways, if you were to ask a lot of people, do you want to engage with your children in what they're learning and discuss it and wonder if their teacher really has some biblically unsound things? I doubt sincerely that for a lot of people, that's their primary concern. Their primary concern is our kids have something to do when mom and dad work. And quite frankly, I don't want to have to go to school again. <laughs> I don't want to have to be able to evaluate it. Again, I believe that's a dereliction of duty. Yeah. And that's the part that becomes very unpopular. Yeah. And that's that's another one of the design flaws here. Are, there's parental holdups. When you have a system that promises to be the answer, not only for general knowledge, but also from a Christian perspective, look at us. We're going to fill in both sides of that secular sacred for you. Parents are often more eager to have their kids learn more in the secular fields than they did, at least more than, than what they, they learned. And they're also, in a general sense, eager for them to learn more Christian-wise than what they did but only to a certain extent. They're not eager for their kids to learn more foundational Christianity than they know because they're worried they're going to get questions they can't answer. They're, they're worried they're, the kids are going to ask questions they don't know and they're going to have to, to learn something Christian at age 15. The, the kids are going to say, Mom, why, why am I studying this here now at my age when you don't even know it at your age? And exactly. to a certain extent, if you claim that as your faith, that's a valid response. That's a valid question. An invalid response is, well, just don't teach them that stuff or just shut up. <laughs> the Christian <laughs> response is, you're right. Let's learn this together. Yeah. You, you think about it. And I, I went to what would be considered a traditional classical school. It was a Catholic school, but at the time it was rigorous and you'd have to go through it. But you think of all the stuff like trigonometry and calculus. Mm -hmm. Now, important subjects for certain fields. But if you don't have the basic in the basics in terms of biblical thought, which I didn't get in my Catholic schools, you don't have a sense of evaluating, okay, I have this knowledge. I've taken this job or this occupation. Does this job or occupation glorify God? Or am I doing something that, oh, I have lots of credentials and I know a lot of stuff, but am I using it to build the kingdom of God or the, the kingdom of man? So those are some of the design flaws in the classical Christian schools. And the, the only other thing we need to, to, to touch on then is the execution flaws. And this is, this is the people element. And we, we mentioned a little bit of this before, but the weakest link in any plan is always the human element. Okay. Doug Wilson's system is actually Doug Wilson's school, which is personally overseen and guarded by the vigilance, by the sedulity of Doug Wilson. Most classically Christian schools are not run by a Doug Wilson level captain. And we can't say that enough. That's not to say that they all aren't. There's, there's going to be some out there that are phenomenal. 
but the system itself doesn't guarantee success. So you have to judge based off of each individual school and how well they individually do. If you're a believer, if I've said it forever, if we need to move to Moscow, if, if you're a believer in Moscow, Idaho, and you can't homeschool, your kids should be in Doug Wilson school, period. <laughs> you, you're not going to get better than, than what they have set up because they have phenomenal execution. All of those things we're talking about that you need to look into for teachers and whatnot. They've done that. They're, they're really, they're really, really, really good at putting forward good students who then become great teachers who are biblically rooted and grounded. Even then, it still isn't the school's job to train up your child to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's yours. There just happen to be some good, biblically tested tools that can help you train up your kid. Okay? Maybe that's a Christian school. Maybe it's not. While a fleet ship can be charted safely through dangerous waters at the helm of a capable captain, (laughs) what happens when less capable captains come along and lay their hands at the wheel. Oh, oh, people are going to automatically flock to this because it's, it's Christian and it's high education. And I'm going to be able to be really successful at this. There's room for great things to happen. And there's room for great horrors to happen. Doug Wilson school is associated with a association of classical Christian schools or something. I'd I'd have to look up. There's a big accredited nationwide association. I, I went on the website. Because I'm going, oh, okay, okay, that's neat. I wonder if there's any in West Virginia. There's one. I couldn't find, I looked on the website, I couldn't find a statement of beliefs other than Christian and biblical. And then everything else was all scholastic excellence technology. Okay, so that's Christian and biblical. What, what do you mean by those terms? By what standard and for what ends? I couldn't even find a denomination association, which means that I can't even go and look up what denominational beliefs you're teaching as biblical and Christian, what biblical and Christian you're applying to all of these classical subjects and that you're saying you're, you're judging them according to. The, the faculty of this local one, one out of every eight were seminary graduates. I, I didn't recognize any of the names of the seminary, so I had to go look them up. Most of them were American Baptists, which I am very familiar with. I was very involved in the American Baptist Church in my state the first 20 years of my life until I pretty much finished my Bible degree and started looking at the, the Baptist Bible standards going, you guys have edited this down a lot. There's not a lot left of the Bible that you do really believe in or confess to. They not only lack the biblical doctrine, but they lack a desire to learn any further doctrine. They're, the local Baptists are very staunch about, no, 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 no. I mean, read your Bible, but don't go any further in depth than just read your Bible. That's fancy and stuff. Occasionally, the pastor will go a little more in depth than just read your Bible. So that's not really much of a Christian or biblical qualification to me. The other seminary was non-denominational. Why is something stated as non-denominational? Do you not have beliefs? Can you not state your beliefs? Or are you just trying to make everybody get along and going with the lowest common doctrinal denominator? That's uh, not very biblical. What, what, what do you have left? Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, the Bible. I mean, essentially just key words, <laughs> the same as all of your scholastic and educational key words that have no real meaning behind them. 
I don't consider those. I don't know how to, I mean, maybe those people are, are very spiritual people. Maybe, maybe they're trustworthy. Maybe they only survived, you know, two, three years in the seminary with some really sketchy or non-existent pursuits of theological <laughs> studies and doctrines. Maybe, but I can't say based off of their qualifications. You know what qualifications they did list on their website? The local university degrees. Everyone has a teaching degree. Everyone's gone through the university and they've got their bachelor's of science and education so that you know that they're ready to train your kids. But what? That's great and all when you have to answer to the state and the state wants to say, you know, no, no, in order to be a qualified teacher, you have to get a teaching certificate to go through this. But as a Christian, do I consider your BS in education a qualification of you being a capable teacher? I, like I said, I've taken a year of those courses. I've looked into the Dewey system. I, I actually have a family member who happens to be the board of the local department of education. And it's not a God centered, God leaning, God allowing educational system. It is humanism. It is teaching the indoctrination of humanism. It is the methods that are meant to eliminate any tolerance for God and his standard in Christianity and religion. Maybe they just survived. Maybe they made it through four years of education and they don't agree with anything that they were taught. Maybe all of those teachers did that. But what, what are they saying nowadays when kids go through a university education, when they come in Christian and head out, what is it? 88% of them are losing their faith in college. In those years that they're in university, 88% of them are turning from Christ, are turning from the Bible. So are you telling me that the 12% that don't happen to have been in one of the fields that is most staunchly anti-biblical, anti-God, pro-state, and that we happen to get all of them here for this program? It just, it, it doesn't seem likelihood. So I can't, qualifications for teachers need to be better according to biblical standards. The same thing that, that biblical standards for teachers are um, for, for the teaching elders in the Bible. We need to know something about their faith. They have to be ready and able to give an answer in season and out for the faith that they received. They don't do that. Most of them don't do that. Now, that's not to say that every classical Christian school is like that. But a lot of them aren't. So then can we universally trust? It says Christian and it's classical. So it must be trustworthy. So let me say this, because I could, if, for those who've made it through this length of the conversation and <laughs> haven't decided, I give up. I'm going to go hide under the bed. I don't want to have to hear any more of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Kathy, I think you're saying is don't be dazzled by the glittering lights and the tinsel, and everything else. If you honestly, as a parent, want to stand before God and say, and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He's not going to pull out transcripts. He's not going to pull out test scores to see how your children did. So instead of being dazzled by, what if my children don't learn Latin? Okay. That's why I went at the beginning and I said, what's your mission statement? What are you trying to accomplish? Now, there are some endeavors. There are some callings that the knowledge of Latin 
will be extremely helpful. But then you gear what you're doing to the overall goal. Mm -hmm. And when it comes right down to it, if you actually, you yourself understood the basics of the faith, understood how that none of the verses that are memorized, none of the books of the Bible that are known well, they all have application in 2023. True Christian reconstruction is reading the scripture and saying, God, this is God's word to me today. What do I do with it? And not decide, well, I don't have to know that. That's for the professionals. There is no professional Christian. <laughs> there are true believers or not. So we just tackled in this discussion how to evaluate a Christian school. Our next conversation is for those who saying, okay, I'm going to do this myself. There are a lot of classical curriculums out there. How do I evaluate the curriculum? Because guess what? I'll be the teacher or somebody will be the teacher. And I think as somebody, now Kathy, full disclosure, is in the midst of educating her children. She's got a 10-year-old and how old is your son? Five. Five. Okay. I have graduated my children. They're all adults. But we still have the same passion for what true education is. And this is where you have to learn how to hear from God and how to observe your children. Some of your children will have a talent and an inclination in a particular area. And then as the parent, you get to foster that. I, I think you could say easily, looking at your son and your daughter, not only are they obviously different people, but you approach them differently, correct? Yes. Yeah. They have two very different educational plans that are in accordance with the wonder that God has made them to be according to their strengths, according to their drives, their, their personal desires, according to their shortcomings. And most importantly, according to their spiritual life according right. to the awakening of God within them, according to how they're beginning to understand the Bible and see their place within the church, see their place within the family, see their place as constantly under the benevolent, loving eyes of Almighty God. And to recognize that there are they are citizens of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. They don't become a citizen at 18. They don't get naturalized into the kingdom of God. Everybody <laughs> is in the kingdom of God. Now, the question is, are you a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God or are you apostate and disobedient? And so I think the most important aspect is to communicate to children. You are at the stage of life where your job, your work is to acquire knowledge governed by righteousness and holiness so that you can serve God. Mm -hmm. And that's how we evaluate and that they are responsible. I don't care how old they are. They're responsible. And not only are they responsible, it's their work. Yeah. And guess what? You work six and you rest from your labors one out of the that six days. So they don't get relegated to, you're just a kid, you know, we do the real work. No, they're doing real work. And this allows us this, this sort of overview that Kathy's giving and what we'll talk about next time is to equip parents in how to better steward the lives of their children. And instead of getting overwhelmed by all her information, let me remind you, 
what she said at the outset of our discussion, that she felt that God had put a call on her life to read and to understand. And I imagine, Kathy, you read stuff, and at the end of reading it, you go, I don't agree with any of it. But I now know what that person thinks. And Mm -hmm. so that's what puts you in a position for me to utilize you as someone who has expertise, not that you are an expert and you're the final say. I imagine there are people who are going to hear some of our discussion and say, I don't agree with that. Great. But she's bringing up issues and items for people to consider. And I think that's important because if we want to see the status quo be God honoring and dominion oriented, then we have to take our job as parents seriously. That's why when people say, oh, yes, well, I put my kids in school so I can go out and pursue my career. You have just taken a lesser calling. There is no higher calling for a parent than to steward the lives of their children because you don't want some sort of temporary congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, (laughs) but your children have fallen by the wayside. All right. Just a little preview what will your orientation be for the next segment? So we've, we've talked about curriculum, but now we're going to go into depth and we're going to look at the subjects because we've looked at the system so far. We've, we've looked at the overall idea of classical education and we've looked at the specific schools that operate and try to teach under that system. Now we need to actually analyze what is being taught in classical education or so we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because there's some good stuff being taught here. I'm not saying I don't want to scare you away from ever teaching anything about the classics or anything that's ever taught in classical education. I want to put you on your guard against the system of classical education, but I want to show you how to bring it under dominion. I want to show you how we engage with these subjects within the curriculum in a way that brings glory to God and helps us enjoy him forever. Amen. All right. Thanks, Kathy. Listeners, I hope you join us for the next segment. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.